The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Back to the legislature. Here's Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. Since yesterday, we've confirmed 49 new cases of COVID-19. This means that 195 cases have now been identified in our province. We suspect up to 11 of these cases may be community transmission, and I want to be clear, 11 total, not 11 of the new cases. However, investigations are continuing, and these numbers will likely change as more information becomes available. As before, it is only Calgary and Edmonton who seem to potentially be implicated by these cases. Ten individuals are now hospitalized, five of whom are receiving care in the ICU, which is three additional ICU admissions over the past 24 hours. There have been no additional deaths. The good news is that we're now starting to see numbers of Albertans who have recovered from COVID-19. As of today, three individuals have been reported to us as recovered. Other developments to celebrate include the hard work of our health teams. One example of innovation in Alberta is the quick training of many medical students to enhance our contact tracing capacity. There is so much hard work going on at the front lines with public health contact tracing, making sure that every one of these new cases is contacted and anyone who was in contact with them while they were symptomatic gets a phone call and instructions on what to do. I want to thank all of those who are tirelessly working at this task because it is this contact tracing that is helping to contain the spread of this virus. We are also incredibly proud of all of the hard work our lab services have been doing. Worldwide, as you heard earlier, Alberta has been conducting among the highest number of tests per capita. I have been hearing from individuals who are waiting to hear their test results, and I want to assure you that Alberta Health Services is doing their best to get back to you. Staff are prioritizing callbacks to individuals who have tested positive for COVID-19, and it sometimes takes longer to return calls to those who have had negative tests. We are continuing to monitor the development of COVID-19 in our communities, to evaluate our public health response, and to make adjustments and implement new measures to ensure that we are all protecting the most vulnerable members of our communities. Today, we are putting additional measures in place at seniors' facilities. Previously, visitors were restricted to family, friends, or paid companions whose care and companionship was necessary for the well-being of a resident. Now, only a single individual from this group who is designated by the resident or a guardian may visit. Each essential visitor must be verified and undergo a health screening prior to entering the facility. This may include a temperature check or a questionnaire. Facilities must have security staff or a greeter to conduct this screening and verify that the visitor is designated. Exceptions to these essential visitor rules will be made for family members to visit a person who is dying, so long as only one visitor enters the facility at a time. These measures will be extremely difficult for residents of seniors' facilities. While they are necessary to protect our seniors and staff who work with them from the spread of COVID-19, there are additional steps we can all take to make this easier on seniors who are affected. One of the most meaningful actions Albertans can take is simply picking up the phone. Even spending just a few minutes on the phone with a senior can go a long way toward reducing feelings of loneliness and isolation. 
This is especially important for seniors who are living alone in addition to those who are in residential care facilities. All of us can make regular phone calls with our elder loved ones a part of our new normal. I know that the measures we have put in place continue to strain families, business and all of Alberta. I must reiterate their importance. If you are feeling sick with fever or cough or even mild cold-like symptoms, you must stay home and away from others. Those who have returned from travel outside the country must stay home for 14 days after their return, even if they are feeling well. Measures such as restrictions on gatherings and closure of the types of businesses that we have previous, previously announced must be followed. And while those who are feeling well and haven't returned from traveling can be out in the community, be sure to wash hands frequently and stay two meters away from others as much as possible. My team and I are receiving many questions about applying these measures to people's daily lives. One question has been about whether it is safe to be outside when someone is self-isolating. I want to be clear that there is no danger to others if someone who is self-isolating goes for a walk outside and stays two meters away from others. Being outside and active is an important support for health, both physical and mental, and should be encouraged. With respect to other activities, I know under normal circumstances, many Albertans would be gearing up to visit their local farmers markets this weekend. At this point, these markets are in the same category as grocery stores and shopping centres and can remain open. But again, I urge you to practice social distancing and excellent hand hygiene if you leave the house. Another question we have received is about funerals. For those experiencing the loss of a loved one, funerals may still be held, providing there are fewer than 50 attendees. But you must maintain social distancing. Anyone ill, even with mild symptoms, must not attend. I know it is heartbreaking to refrain from hugging loved ones at something as difficult as a funeral. But please trust that these practices, as painful as they are, are necessary to prevent the spread of this deadly and contagious illness. Finally, I want to share some stories that Albertans have shared with me through my Twitter account on acts of kindness during these extraordinary and trying times. Stories of neighbours taking the pet of someone in self-isolation to the vet so the animal could receive care. Organisations going above and beyond to help travellers get home safely. People taping drawings and paper snowflakes to their window to brighten others' days. And I want to thank teachers for their continued work in supporting students' learning. Others are simply reaching out to people who are struggling, whether it is online or over the phone. Albertans are responding to this extraordinary situation in extraordinary ways. Please continue to share your stories using the Alberta Cares hashtag. Continue to take care of each other and yourselves. The importance of self-care in these uncertain, stressful times cannot be overstated. With that in mind, I will be taking some personal time this weekend to rest and recharge. And my colleague, Deputy Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Marsha Johnson will provide tomorrow's update so I can spend some time with my family. Thank you for your support as we respond to this serious situation. Thank you for supporting each other. I look forward to joining you again on Monday. Thank you and I'm happy to take questions. Dr. Hitchcock. Sorry, we're just going to have brief remarks oh. from uh, Deputy Minister Johnson. Sorry, Winnick, and then we'll begin.
Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Paul Winnick, the Deputy Minister of Municipal Affairs. And as you know, the province of Alberta is facing a major challenge with this outbreak. As part of the government's response, we are making amendments to the Emergency Management Act. The Emergency Management Amendment Act will allow local and provincial states of emergency to exist at the same time should, it be ever, should we ever require to declare this. Under existing legislation, the Alberta government, when it declares a provincial state of emergency, takes charge of all local authorities. This effectively nullifies the local declaration in response, since two emergency declarations cannot exist at the same time. Amending this section of the Act will help communities and the province respond to emergencies according to their respective levels of responsibility and expertise. This amendment provides clarity and improves the coordination of local and provincial response efforts in the event of disasters, not only the current pandemic, uh, but should there be wildfires or floods in the future. And of course, beyond the COVID-19 outbreak, Alberta has now entered the natural disaster season. Allowing individual communities to run their own states of local emergency will ensure the province is ready and able to respond to additional emergencies and disasters should the need arise. Alberta has been through significant emergencies and disasters in recent years, including major floods and fires. Because of these experiences, we're able to work seamlessly with our emergency partners across the province and across the ministries. The Emergency Management, the Amendment Act, will help to ensure the best possible response at all levels of government to the challenges that we face now and in the future. Thank you. I right, will now open up questions. We got Dean and then Trisha. Dr. Hintz, two topics. Today. One is the ICU cases. Could you put some more information on that in terms of the circumstances of them? Mm -hmm. And is there anything we should draw from five ICU cases out of 190 cases altogether? So I have basic information only. As you know, uh, things change very rapidly. And so we're drawing our data summaries now through our administrative databases because as you know with this many new cases it's impossible for me to get a personal phone call with a description of each of those cases. Uh, the information that I have at this time is that uh, we have one case in their 40s and one in their 60s. Those were two that had previously been reported. Of the new ICU cases, uh, I believe one is in their 70s, one in their 60s, and one in our administrative database uh, did not have the age recorded, which again, sometimes the investigation takes a while to then populate through our systems. Uh, I think what I would say is that we knew this would happen. This is why we're taking these extraordinary measures. This shows that this is a, a virus to be taken very seriously. Uh, we continue to do everything we can to prevent every single case and every single case is one that could potentially end up in a serious condition and so again while while we only have these five right now again it's a signal that we need to take this extremely seriously. A question for Dr. Can you update us now on the bond spiel doctors? How many Alberta doctors was it? Have they been notified? Are they now self-isolating? And do you see, given the specialties they have, that this could have any impact on fighting COVID? 
So that investigation continues to be underway. So I'm working on getting the additional details. Uh, my understanding is that today public health is getting those lists and contacting all of those doctors individually who may not have heard the public appeal and making sure that not only does the, the organizer uh, who I think has reached out to those all those individuals, that public health actually has their contact information and has an individual conversation with each one of them. So that's happening today. So again, my understanding is that the organizer has notified everyone of the requirements, but public health does need to do that individual notification. So again, I, I would uh, hope that uh, the doctors who are in the situation are following the recommendations and we're going to make sure that they understand that. Uh, but again, it, it just takes time. We were notified of this yesterday. We're getting the list. We're making those phone calls. Uh, but it's really only been a little over 24 hours since we were notified. Tricia? Uh, sort of following up on that, um, we've gotten a few tips about people in quite powerful, not powerful, high up positions um, at key facilities that might have been there. Is there any concern about exposure for patients or anything? That's a part of the investigation that's happening right now. So obviously if, if someone was there, became ill and worked while ill, that would be a significant concern. But I don't have those details. That's something that we're investigating. Excellent. One more and then we'll go to the phones. Didn't um, we saw just about 95 cases or so in about the first 12 days. In about the two or three days since, we're now at 195. Mm -hmm. Are these numbers surprising or is this sort of par for the, par for the course? So the majority of our numbers are still from people who've come uh, travel from outside the country or those who are close contacts of those people. So I would say that uh, this is again evidence of that public health containment in action. So many of those close contacts are people that we had notified, informed them to be on self-isolation and when they became sick they were tested and were confirmed. So again the, the measures that we're taking are really those to contain that. So of all of those cases that I talked about, again only again our number today is 11. I think that may change a bit as we do investigation and we may find a connection that wasn't immediately obvious. Uh, but certainly it's concerning. Uh, every single case that we get is one that needs to be contained. And the ones that are most concerning are the ones that are showing up uh, that haven't been staying home while ill and have put others at risk. So again, over and over again, that key message, when anyone is sick, they must stay home. So we'll go to the phones and we'll definitely come back to the room. Operator, could you patch to the first question? Our first question comes from Emma Graney of the Globe and Mail. Your line is open. Yeah, yeah g'day. I've got a question and a follow-up here. Um, we're hearing of a possible case at an Alberta oil sands camp. Now, I understand you can't give specific details, but I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the worries you might have around these places that are close living quarters, they have buffets, you know, they're at risk, really, of spreading germs pretty easily. What's your advice to them? So with respect to work camps, uh, there certainly are measures that those places can put in place, especially with things like a communal dining area. And so they can have people potentially eating in different shifts, uh, sitting apart from each other at tables. Uh, buffet style serving should be discouraged, so there shouldn't be a common handling of serving utensils. Uh, so there may be changes that are required in those places, but certainly there are measures that they can take to reduce the risk. 
With respect to, to uh, you indicated there might be a report, that's not something that I have heard. I'm not aware of a case in the work camps. Um, so again, I know that local public health, when they do get cases, they do that investigation. And if there were to be a significant risk beyond immediate close contacts, we've asked for local public health to notify us, and that's not a notification I've received. You said you had a follow-up there, Emma? Yeah, I do. Now, this actually moves over to the change they made with the um, state of local emergency. I'm just curious there, whose direction is the most powerful? Will provincial direction override local direction? Because you might have some municipalities where, for example, you know, the town council is convinced it's all a hoax, doesn't really exist, and so therefore they're not willing to do anything. Would the province direction override that silliness? In, uh, in that case, and I, I, I don't think we would ever run into that case, that extreme example that you've mentioned, but absolutely the provincial direction, if there is a discrepancy, would override local direction, but we would work very hard to ensure that things are synchronized. Excellent. Operator, could you pass through the next question, please? Our next question comes from Myrna of CBC Radio. Your line is Canada. Um, actually, sorry, someone just asked my question. It was about the workers' camps. So I'm that, good. That's sorry. no problem. Yeah. Operator, could you patch through the next question, please? The next question comes from Kevin Nimick of C uh, CTV Calgary. Your line is open. Hi, Dr. Hinshaw. I have a question and a follow-up. Uh, so today we learned a staff member at a Calgary McDonald's contracted COVID-19. Is it still safe to buy food from restaurants, be they fast food or dine-in? So, uh, again, I'll say that I don't have that specific information. I know you're not asking me to confirm that case, but I would caution all of you if you're getting reports that sometimes those reports are simply of someone who is sick and is being tested, and they may not actually be a confirmed case. So just that caution in terms of verification. Uh, with respect to the safety of eating food from restaurants, so this is not a foodborne illness. So one of the things that if people want to be as safe as possible, we talked, I think, in a previous uh, media availability about is it safe to order in food from restaurants. So we talked about the fact that if you order in food, to be absolutely safe, you can transfer that food into your own dishes, wash your hands. Uh, but again, the, the likelihood that you would be exposed to COVID through the, the packaging would be very low. With respect to going into restaurants or going through a drive-through, for example, uh, again, the the virus is not foodborne. Uh, so again, to be absolutely safe, ideally you would wash your hands before eating the food uh, or use hand sanitizer immediately before eating the food, uh, and then it would be safe to do so. And there was a follow-up? Yeah, so do you have a timeline in mind for when we'll know when we will know if uh, efforts to isolate and socially distance are working? So the virus has an incubation period of approximately two weeks. Uh, most cases occur within five to seven days of an exposure. They can occur a little earlier or a little later. So we would expect that the impacts of the social distancing measures that we've taken over the, the last week, uh, that we would see those impacts with respect to community spread after about two weeks have passed. And we would need to sustain those uh, for another several weeks as we monitor the situation because this virus is not going to be um, rendered ineffective by these measures. We're simply slowing down the spread, stopping it as much as possible. And so we do need to be prepared that these measures will be in place for weeks to come. 
Excellent. Go back to the room, Julia. Um, what changes are you anticipating with the closure of the Canada-U.S. border effective midnight in terms of um, number of cases and suspected community transmission cases? So we know that uh, the United States has been the number one source of our imported infections. Uh, and that's come from various different states. So that closure of that border to non-essential travel by mutual agreement is critical to reducing the number of new imported infections we get. I think that the another critical piece will be making sure though that we continue to have supply chains running uh, because if we aren't able to get supplies that would be a challenge. We know that we've created exemptions so that trucking companies can continue to run and I know that's been something with that border closure that's been made very clear is that supply chains will continue. Uh, so again that that's the important piece about the border closure will limit the majority of the traffic uh, but essential traffic will continue to so that we can have our essential supplies. And as the number of cases of community transmission um, seems like they're continuing to rise and with uh, the border closing and different travel restrictions in place, do you anticipate any changes to the criteria for testing and screening? So as I've talked about before, that is something that we're looking at and we right now again feel that people who are coming from outside the country have the highest probability of being infected if they're coming from areas where we know transmission is occurring. Uh, we also know that the testing that we're doing right now, so we are testing, again I mentioned anyone who's hospitalized, any of our outbreaks, long-term care facilities, certain family physicians who are sentinel surveillance. So we're doing that testing already and making sure that we do have some of that background testing happening. We're discussing whether or not we may want to shift and there's been discussions at a national level uh, looking at how we would prioritize because as I've said before, we will never be able to test every Albertan with a cough or fever. And so we want to make sure that we're allocating that scarce resource of testing in the best way possible. I know I've been talking about that for several days and, and the reason it's not an immediate decision is because it is complex and we want to make sure that we're allocating those testing resources where it provides the most benefit to the population. Excellent. Uh, 49 new cases was our biggest jump to date so far. I'm just curious if you have, I, I know it's hard to predict and it's a mm -hmm. new virus, but do you have projections on how many Albertans may contract the virus at some point? Is it in the thousands, ten thousands perhaps? You know what, that depends on us, right? So I think the, the total number that will eventually contract the virus depends on our ability to prevent the spread. And so it's very difficult to give a, a firm number in terms of how many will eventually get it because all of the measures that we're currently putting in place are designed to lower that as much as possible. Uh, so at this point, it's extremely difficult to predict. And uh, sorry, a follow-up. Uh, you said we've had three people recovered, but uh, now that they're most likely out of self-isolation, is it possible to catch COVID a second time around? So what we know from case reports in other countries is that sometimes people will test positive, have a nose swab that tests positive after they've recovered. But what's not clear is what that means because what I'm not sure if people understand that the nose swab test, what it does is it sort of looks for... Uh, um, kind of the, the presence or absence of the virus, but it can't tell whether or not the virus is live and viable. So some people may have uh, 
copies of genetics of the virus in their system for many days after they've recovered. Uh, but what looks like from, from some of the studies that, that have been done where they've actually taken that virus from those swabs and then tried to grow it, tried to culture it, it looks like uh, from some of those studies that it's about an eight-day maximum after the start of symptoms, especially for people who have mild illness, that the virus is actually viable or alive. Uh, so these cases where you hear of somebody who's well and then gets tested and is positive again, it's really difficult to say if perhaps they just are still shedding virus that's dead virus and because this is still so new we actually don't know the firm answer to that question we would expect from what we know from other viruses that people would have some kind of at least short-term immunity but this is still so new we can't say with certainty excellent we'll go back to the phone and then we'll come back to the room uh, operator could you patch to the first question our next question comes from Rosa Saba of the Toronto Star your line is open Thanks. Uh, actually, my question was for Kenny, so uh, go, go ahead. Thanks. Excellent. Uh, operator, could you pass through the next question? The next question comes from Tyler Dock of the National Post. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Um, I just wanted to ask about the cases in Calgary. It seems like the, the most of the cases have been in Calgary, and so I wanted to ask if you have any concerns with the Calgary International Airport being one of the four destinations for international travelers and, and whether or not there's concerns that um, that should be taken to a different international airport. So uh, with respect to the cases in Calgary, I think anyone who's coming from outside the country uh, has a higher risk of being exposed. And we know that Calgary has more international travel uh, coming into that particular city. And that's one reason why the numbers are higher. Another reason why the numbers are higher is that there was one particular cluster of cases I've talked about before that has at least, and we're, we're still trying to count up the numbers, but that particular group has at least um, 34 cases associated with one gathering and then some onward spread from some of the people who were infected. Uh, so if you look at the Calgary numbers, again, 34 of those was one particular incident that, that has spread. So it's not necessarily an indication of greater risk in that community. And again, I want to emphasize that when we find those cases and make sure that they're isolated, that's how we prevent that further spread from happening. Uh, so with respect to whether or not Calgary should be that destination airport, I think it's not, I would not say Calgary is at greater risk than Edmonton or any other place in terms of having that airport as the destination. We know that uh, Alberta Health Services staff have been in the airports for the past several days, making sure that returning travelers get accurate information about what's expected of them, why they need to self-isolate, what they need to do to properly uh, maintain self-isolation. And so I think whether it's Calgary or Edmonton, those international travelers need to get that accurate information. Uh, and so I don't know that it, it really makes much difference which of those two airports was selected. Excellent. Come back to the room for the final two. We got Trisha and then Julia. Um, you touched earlier on uh, some people not complying that may have come back and traveled. They had uh, seclusion orders, but they were breaking them. Can you talk more about that? And you had touched on um, working with the Justice Minister as well. Do you know where that's at? So yesterday I did get some questions about compliance. Uh, and so there, there's two pieces of that. One is that question of people coming back and not self-isolating. And so what we have done is worked with the colleges, all health professional regulatory colleges in the province, to make sure that uh, they're willing, if any of their members is not following appropriate public health guidance, that they are very happy to follow up with those members and remind them that it is a professional obligation to follow these directions. So 
So if somebody does see a member of a regulated health profession uh, who is not following the guidance, the, the direction to self-isolate after returning from international travel, uh, they you know, may want to, to talk with the person, make sure the person is aware and not encouraging people to, uh, to report them just right away. But if they feel that this person is knowingly violating and putting people at risk, they can call that person's regulatory college. Each college has a public facing web, uh, phone number and then the college uh, will enforce the, the need for that person to follow these guidelines. And have you been hearing about that outside of the one uh, lab tech in Calgary, the dental lab? Uh, so the one case that was reported, I think it was yesterday that we were hearing about was a dentist um, and then Albert Health Service was able to work through that process. Uh, but what we want to make clear is that the best place for people to go is again those regulatory colleges. Uh, so I haven't necessarily been receiving lots of reports of those, but we did want to make sure that people knew where they could go with those concerns. Uh, so that's the that's one piece of it. The second was the work with the Ministry of Justice, and that's more about uh, the closure of places, the restrictions on schools, daycares, and then other public places, other businesses. And so that enforcement process uh, is still being worked out, uh, but we are close to having a, an agreement. Will there be something for people in, who want You've been listening to a news conference by Dr. Dina Hinshaw giving an update on uh, the latest situation in Alberta when it comes to COVID-19. I can tell you right now there's been 49 new cases reported. Uh, that's the biggest jump so far since we had our first case. There's 195 cases in Alberta right now.